Good evening and welcome to the Classroom Critics. I'm Andrew Martino and as always I'm joined by my colleagues Bill Ivers and Walter Freeman. Tonight we're talking about 1950 Sunset Boulevard directed by Billy Wilder starting starring William Holden as Joe and Gloria Swanson as Nora. Um, this is one of those films that we've been waiting to do for an awfully long time. So tonight uh, we, we're getting our chance. But before we do, we want to send a special shout out. So Walter. We would like to uh, mourn the passing of Fred Willard, one of the great comedians in Hollywood. I can think of fewer ways to spend your life than making people laugh. Rest in peace, Fred Willard. We will miss you. Absolutely. Yeah, I second that. Uh, the guys cracks me up. I mean, just seeing him come on screen and any single thing that he does, is just instant, instant laughter. And uh, what an improvisational artist, you know, and of course, my personal favorites, I think, are the Christopher Guest films. And uh, oh, yeah. um, I just spent so much time just laughing. And uh, like we said there, Walter, you know, I mean, there's no better way to spend a life than to make people laugh especially in our dark times. <laughs> but on that note, speaking of darkness, um, <laughs> let's, let's get to it. we have Sunset Boulevard, right? So um, for me guys, this is one of my personal favorites. I probably say that about every single film we do, yeah. but this is really high up there on my list. And one of the things that come to mind when I see this film, every time I, I, I view this, I say to myself, Holy cow, this was, this was produced in 1950, and it is cynical as hell. Um, this had nothing good to say about anything. <laughs> the, you know, human, whether it's human nature or the, the, the film industry. And uh, it, that's one of the reasons why I like it. You know, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, but I, I really do think that this film is uh, it's such a scathing, devastating commentary on, again, just... I think there are two levels here for me. There's, there's the industry, the, the, you know, the dream factory, so-called, and just human nature itself. So uh, there's not a character in this film who is, well, a couple of minor characters, but the, the, the main players, they're not very, um, they're, they're, they're likable, I would say, but they're not necessarily good people on, on, on some level. So what do you guys think? Is, is that, uh, do you find this to be as dark as in sinister of a film as I do? Oh, oh, absolutely. There's a line that just strikes me to the heart of darkness when um, the butler is, um, Eric von Straheim's character uh, is talking about how, how famous she was and said once a Maharishi bought one of her silk stockings and he strangled himself with it. And to me, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of sums up the adoration we feel for these stars, but the darkness uh, that can be sometimes attached to the idea of fame and celebrity. Mm -hmm. it, was the, it was the Maharishi? Yeah. <laughs> so something well, like that, Maharishi or... <laughs> I'm just... apologize yeah. if I got that Maharaja, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maharaja, you know, Maharaja. This is also speaks to the seedier side of Hollywood. And, and one of the things that I found most disturbing is the fact that Hollywood quickly forgets that, you know, what you did yesterday is really no longer relevant and it's what you're going to do tomorrow and, and, and how easily uh, they forget not only about their, about their actors in general, but particularly as we see in this film with, with female actors. And if you look at the people involved, you know, Billy Wilder, a lot of directing experience. Yeah. Um, Eric von Stroheim, who was, you know, had a heyday, but was reduced to playing things. Gloria Swanson, whose time had passed. And William Holden, who had almost faded from view. And, and so 
they all in some way in their own lives, as well as on celluloid, embrace that, that bitter cynicism attached to Hollywood, which became so prevalent in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I show this film in film studies, uh, the kids, I think, just really get deep into it very quickly. This film gets rolling right away. And yeah. uh, it's a, you know, it's not necessarily a slow build. I think immediately we see this, um, it's very interesting character, you know, William Holden's character. He's a guy who just was trying to live out his dream, trying to make a living as a screenwriter. And of course not working out. And immediately we see that he's really, really down on his luck to the point where he's, uh, his car is about to be repossessed. And uh, within a few minutes of the film, well, actually, I mean, let's, we can go back even further that just the, the way the film begins, I mean, just <laughs> that immediately sucks you right in. I, I keep forgetting it's, it's kind of a frame story. So we see the, yeah. uh, the floating corpse and uh, upon first viewing, you don't necessarily know who that is. And you don't necessarily connect it with a narrator either. I remember one time I actually spoiled the film in a way to a class where I actually, before the film, I was going over a lot of the noir motifs that are, that are prevalent in this film. One of the things I told them, I said, well, it has a voiceover narration, but it's unique because the voiceover narration is actually by a dead person. However, you don't really know it's, it's uh, William Holden's character until uh, you don't know for sure until what, the end, right? I mean, you can probably make that connection if you really think about it, but I think you quickly forget about the pool scene. Um, but you know, that lures you right in. How did this happen? And uh, that's a very typical, I think, film noir. You know, we kind of see that with uh, Double Indemnity where you have the, this, uh, you know, the it's a frame story and a confession basically with that voiceover and you see the, um, not quite the end, but toward, you know, the, the, towards the end at the beginning and then he's telling the story. And that's what we have going here. And then uh, we see William Holden's character just, pull into, you can say the wrong driveway uh, for our purposes it's the right driveway because there'd be no story. And just the ball gets, it's just one quirky detail after the next. And I think the writing is really cool in that way where we just immediately see that the world that, um, why is the name of William Holmes character uh, escaping me? It's Joe. Joe. Joe Gillis. Joe Gillis. Yeah. He, uh, he finds himself in this, this, this world that time forgot, you know, from the, the dead monkey, yeah, um, the, the odd butler, the overly, you know, just the incredibly eccentric character of Norbert Des Desmond herself. And how can you not be instantly gripped into this, this world, this film? You're right. There's, there's something petrified when he drives in, when he gets him, when he finds himself in that driveway and he enters that house, which of course is so, there's so many Gothic motifs that are, that are carried along with this, but you know, he walks back in time and, and it's not as if time stood still. It's just, there's something stagnant about that house. Of course they show that, you know, various parts of the house in disrepair. Um, and he really is, as we see later in the film, he kind of is this breath of fresh air that gives life not only to the house, but to Nora as well. And as, as we see, it has tragic, um, um, an, a tragic outcome at the end. That's right. Yeah. Well, and Bill, you said that, you know, this, this still resonates today with audiences. And I think this is one of the neat tricks the film pulls off because on one hand, it's a time capsule. It's a very specific story that has to be set, you know, after long after the talkies. Uh, but, and yet 
it still deals with the human emotions uh, and amorality that we're all very familiar with today. So it really, it really does, I think, a neat trick of pulling off being both a very much a period piece, but very much a universal piece as well. It's hard to believe that this film is 70 years old. I know. Because it doesn't feel like that. It could come out today and it feels contemporary to me in many ways. The, uh, you know, I think one of the most dated parts of the film, however, is when we see the New Year's party and you see a bunch of people partying and their idea of a wild party is sitting around a piano singing buttons and bows That's true. And, have, <laughs> and having rum punch. <laughs> well, right, I'm, I'm going to give the film uh, some props for pulling off the neat trick of casting Jack Webb literally the most wooden actor in the history of Hollywood <laughs> as a pithy ne'er-do-well party boy. Yeah. That, that makes me laugh every time. His, I never, I mean, dialogue is just. Yeah. Was, was he always wooden though? Because I, I before Sunset Boulevard, I, ne I only knew him from, from Dragnet. Was that just yeah. how he played <laughs> that character? I don't, I don't know the complete filmography of Jack Webb, but <laughs> you guys know the, um, you guys know the original opening for this movie, don't you? Yeah. The, the uh, I know it was. Um, I think there's still some footage of it. I believe on the on one of, on the DVD issues. But uh, yeah, it was supposed to open with uh, Joe Gillis in a morgue, right? A, a hospital morgue, and uh, you know, I guess he's he sits up, or uh, another another person in the morgue, another dead person sits up in the morgue, and they basically have this conversation. You know, so how did you die? <laughs> And uh, I guess that was how it was originally screened. And the, the problem being is that that's, that's co comedic in a way. It sort of sets the, the wrong tone in, in the film, even though it's, there is some dark comedy in it. Yeah. Um, that sort of, I think, puts, it sets the film down a, a different path where I think it eventually, eventually goes. You heard about that opening, Walt? I did, I read about it and audiences laughed when they, they weren't supposed to and yeah. so you know, thank goodness that they, they rethought it. I mean, what a, what a bold move to begin a film uh, with the corpse of the narrator floating in a pool. And yeah. what a brilliant shot that is, shot from, you know, underneath looking up and you see the, the photographers and the police in the background standing on the edge of the pool looking down. It, it's just a, it's an indelible cinematic image. Absolutely. So, okay, so one theme I'd like to discuss a bit um, is the theme of deception and, mm. It's, it's, I think, right, right immediately in the film, we start seeing this theme uh, sort of come to, come to the surface. It's, you know, it's right away where you have the, the car um, creditors coming to take his car back. And, of course, he gets out of that through, you know, sleight of hand. And, and when he pulls into the, uh, the mansion, the Norman Desmond mansion, we see some deception in that scene as well. And it made me think of how much um, the butler, I'm, I'm drawing blank with names tonight. His um, name is Max. Yeah. Max. I'm wondering how much he had to, like, how much he had to do with it. You know, was, was he, um, was he really, did he really think that he was the, the guy with the, who was going to bury that monkey? I, I wonder what is a line, a throwaway line, but when he, when he brings him to his room up in the garage when, after he decides to stay and he says, I already made your bed up this afternoon. Yeah. And, and Joe Gillis says, how did you know I was going to stay? And he doesn't answer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, he's sort of like, he seems like he's, 
he knows a bit more than he should. Well, he's really controlling everything, isn't he? I mean, he's writing the letters, the fan letters to, to Nora. He's, he's controlling almost all the action that comes out of that house. Um, he's got her fooled. Uh, we, we find out uh, towards the end that he's the first husband uh, of yeah. Nora's husband, but yet he's stuck around. He's director in his own right. And then, you know, and this is really his greatest, his greatest achievement is pulling off this particular deception. Sure. Yep. Yep. And so, of course, he, uh, you know, Joe stays a bit and the deception just keeps rolling there where he sees an opportunity mm -hmm. and uh, he thinks he knows the script that is complete garbage. But uh, he sees an opportunity there. So he allows her to think that he's really invested in that project. And he deceives her by giving her the impression that he's a a real screenwriter, you know, with real screen, you know, good screen credits and expensive one, a sought after one, that this is like gonna be a big sacrifice to stick around and help her. So it's one deception after another, and no one seems to be honest with each other at all. Or and, themselves. Right. Or, or themselves, absolutely. And it also carries over into good people. You know, we have, yeah. um, we have the, uh, the girlfriend there. Betty. Betty, thank you guys. You'd be saving my butt here with names Even here. Even she's a little, she's not corrupt per se, but she is dating Artie and starts to make out with, yeah. with Joe. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a, a corrupting influence, uh, you know, whether you're lying to others or even in the case of Norma Desmond, lying to yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good but point. The, the one part of deception that is not carried over, and that's to the audience, that, that's to us watching the film. We, we know what's going on. We know that it's all deceptive. So I think it's a testament to Billy Wilder who's not going to try to fool the audience. We're, we're in on, on, on the deception. That's a good point. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's cool because the big thing too with the corpse in the pool at the beginning turning out to be the narrator, it's not a big aha moment or right. a big musical right. crash. It's just a, a dawning realization. Yeah. You know, whether it comes early on or later on, it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, and, and it's nice because there's no... When you think about it, there's really no flashier, showy moments in the unveiling of these characters. They just, they just unveil themselves in their own world. It's beautiful writing. Joe Gillis does do something noble at the end. I mean, not to get too ahead of ourselves here, but um, lest we get a character who's just completely unlikable in character, um, even though I think he's, he's charming and interesting. Yeah. So I think we, I mean, that's good writing. We can make a character uh, somewhat likable who, has questionable morals and I think he's a well-written character in that sense but he does something noble at the end you know he could uh you know he doesn't go with Betty he, you know he says that um you know gives the impression to Betty that he's staying where he is and yeah. that he's going to continue out doing what he's doing he's not going to lose that opportunity turns her away but the only reason why he's turning her away and this is the impression I get is to um is to do the right thing for his friend right um, he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to take Artie's chance at happiness and probably Betty's. Maybe he knows better. Maybe he knows himself. Maybe he says to himself, um, you know what, Artie in the long run is going to be good, is going to be better for her than I will ever be. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I, you know, not to be too cynical, I, I hope I'm not too cynical, but I think that he realizes that Betty doesn't have a future with him. Yeah, that's a good point. There is, and perhaps he realizes he has no future at that point, that it's all used up to quote another film. <laughs> well, think about how many of the characters are actually in a in one form or another doppelgangers of Joe Gillis. I mean, from yeah. Norman Desmond being the person who achieved the fame he sought, to Artie being the good guy he's not, 
to the girl being the writer he wanted to be, the idealistic writer, uh, even, even to the salesman who's trying to talk him into buying the Vicuna coat over, over the camel hair and just leans in that nice close up of that, that sleazy smirk. And he's like, well, she's paying for it, isn't she? Yeah. You know? And he's seeing, and even Max, you know, who's the first husband, whereas he's the gigolo. And there's just so many characters that seem to be extensions of him, depending on which direction he could go. Yeah, and deception's at the heart of it. Even even minor little things when Joe Gillis goes into the, the pharmacy, supposedly to get to get cigarettes, has a whole conversation, forgets the cigarettes, comes out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, Norma's like, okay, so where's my cigarettes? And she's like, oh, you know, oh, you're smoking too much. <laughs> yeah, just, it's almost as if at every every chance he, he, he got, he was going to put the theme of deception into this uh, into this film. And, and he becomes a different person as well from the, from the moment we first see him all the way up through the end. She dresses him almost as if he's a doll, right? That oh. she goes and she buys him these clothes that he's clearly not comfortable in. Um, she's, she's forcing him to, to collaborate on the screenplay that he's not comfortable with. Um, even those scenes with Betty when they're working together late at night where he seems to enjoy going out uh, in that deceptive piece, um, there, there's something about him that's just, he knows that, it's not going to work out for him, I feel. Right. Could it have it, could it, could it have been anyone that, that wandered in? W would Norma take to any screenwriter coming into that house? Or was there something about Joe that she really liked? You know, what did she see in Joe that made him um, the perfect fly <laughs> to be trapped in her web? In her web? It's hard to say. I think there's a lot of opening, um, you know, when, when they first start having a little give and take, you know, he says, you used to be big. And she said, I, I am big as the pictures that got small. Yeah. And he has a, he has a retort to that. And I think there's something about his cynicism that she likes. And, and I think that I, I, it's hard to say, I'd have to watch that again to see where's the moment when she decides he's the one. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she, he did, you know, he pushed back a little bit and uh, maybe she saw something in that. Um, I love this. I love the line where he's reading the, you know, the, the manuscript and she's sort of staring at him. And, uh, and I like the line where he says, you know, she stared at me through those. I think she said, he mentioned something, but, you know, she's wearing glasses, that is, but she, you know, he says that. It's like she is defying me not to like it. Yeah. It's like, I dare you to not like this. <laughs> but in her own arrogant way, begging me to like it. Absolutely, yeah. Because she needs that affirmation as well. That's right. Yeah, and that's part of the, the overall criticism, I think, of Hollywood. And from what I've read, the industry itself, the producers, you can understand why they they had a problem with this, with this movie. You know, it was an, a, a huge affront and it had nothing positive to say about the way the, you know, the, the, the system worked, the politics of, of film. And it basically said that, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Walt, that actors, writers, what you will, they're, they're all just products. You know, you could, you use them, you, and you throw away the peel. And when you're a little bit too old and you're gone, and Norma Desmond's only 50 in this. Right. 
<laughs> well, we talked about this in a previous podcast when the Martin Scorsese and the Coen brothers and people of that caliber are, and Buster Keaton are fighting to get pictures made after creating masterpieces. That's, you know, that's that same theme over and over again. And, and I will give Paramount kudos for allowing their studio to be used by name yeah. despite knowing that this was a skewering of, of the business. And not to mention Cecil B. DeMille's character, which is Cecil B. DeMille. I mean, he's a, he doesn't look very good in this either. <laughs> uh, and I'm, it's interesting that he allowed himself, his likeness, to be portrayed in that way. I, I found that very interesting. Very brave of, of DeMille to, to do that. Because that could have that played out very easily a, a, a completely different way than I think it did. Yeah. Um, but I, for me, he comes off as a likable character that he's trying to, to be as kind as he can to, to Nora um, without, without really lying to her face about it. Right. And it doesn't seem like he, he, he does the minimum of what he could do to help her. Yeah. You know, which is to make, to, to try to see to it that she's not, her feelings aren't hurt. Yeah. But I don't know if his help is, is all that meaningful. You know, what she really needs is, her identity back. She needs, yep. she needs to work. Yep. And it, it, I just found it amazing that he allowed himself to, it's almost like he was admitting for the industry, for the, the big wigs. He was the mouth, the sort of the mouthpiece admitting this is how we are. Yeah. And it's not, it's not pretty. And I, I just find it very interesting that that statement was, was allowed to be made. Yeah at that time. And it's, it's kind of the tail end of the, the golden age of Hollywood as well. So I think chronologically it, it fits yep. because we're, we're entering a whole different era, you know, the, in the fifties, obviously you have all the, you have commercialism obviously in, in the industry, but you also have films that start to get a little bit more um, cynical, darker, real. However, you know, you have the, the age of Brando and right. And you're coming off world war two and you're coming off that experience that, that broke the world in many cases. But to go back to, to your earlier point, Bill, what I really like about those scenes with Cecil B. DeMille is it shows us exactly what that relationship can be between the actor and the director and yeah. how that is such a symbiotic relationship that they yeah. function without one another. And even though he's sort of cast her off, he, he, you know, he's, he's still ushered her in in a way. And, and you know, she feels good about that. You know, everyone comes over to say hello to her, and and for for a, you know a, an hour or so, she's she's a star again. Norma Desmond, I thought she was dead. <laughs> Even the the grip or the lighting guy. Yeah, you know. right, right, right. But, you know, on, on hey, that scene, um, it's worth noting to talk a minute about Eric von Stroheim, both the the man yeah. as a director and an actor and as a character, because. You know, in real life, he was one of those great early directors. Yeah. And, and he and um, Gloria Swanson worked together, and she fired him from a film. And then he comes on to take this part, and he allows the use of the footage from that film uh, to be used in the screening room. And then also, he, it was his idea to be the, the, the fact that Max is behind writing the fan letters. Yeah. When you look at his own career, you know, he was reduced to playing German heavies and Nazi yeah. characters. And yet he comes on this film in real life as, as a man who is classy. I will, I will contribute to the greatness of this film. And, and that is mirrored in, in the character that he plays, sustaining her illusion. Yeah. I, I love the fact that he's directing the cameras at the end, 
for her. I think that's yeah. beautiful. Great scene. It is a great scene. Yeah. My kids, they, they when they see this film, their minds are blown when they, we see that scene, that clip from her her, um, her heyday. It's a beautiful shot, by the way. They picked a really wonderful, just that little clip is a, a gorgeous shot. And um, yeah, the, the fact that there's so much uh, meta in play in this film and, and to see that clip, that's really her. And uh, the ageism piece of this film, the statement, you know, I don't, I don't think much has changed really. If anything, it might've gotten, gotten worse and it comes to mind. Do you think ageism is more prevalent with female stars? Oh yeah. Oh, unquestionably. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when 50 is washed up and yet, and for many action stars, you know, your, your Clint Eastwood's and all their, their careers are really right. at their peaks. Right. And, and they're always paired with young, beautiful co-stars and, you know, it, it's just, uh, it yeah. definitely is, you know, an, a an actor of such substance as Meryl Streep still fighting to get right age appropriate roles. And, and look at the roles that, that Lauren Bacall took towards the end of her life, right? They were, they were really far on the, the, the far side of supporting roles at, at that point. And yet those supporting roles she did, she was still magnificent in. Right. Maria has that, one of my wife, Maria, she has a huge, and I, rightfully so, but she kind of opened my eyes to that idea. When we watch a movie, any modern movie, you'll see a male star who's playing across from an actress who is 10, 20 years younger, and they're supposed to be, which, you know, obviously, that's, that's, that happens, but would you see the opposite, I wonder? <laughs> would you see the opposite thing happening in a film? I think if you do see the opposite, that's the, that's the, 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 that's the departure of the film, right? That's the story they're trying to tell. And those, stewards, those stories are few and far between. Like Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Sunset Boulevard. I mean, we just talked last, our last um, uh, podcast was about uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and how, you know, in, in his 70s now, uh, Harrison Ford is going to reprise his role as Indiana Jones. How many times can you, can you get beat up? <laughs> Very true, yeah, yeah. Um, the writing. I was, I was shocked to find out that she was 50 years old in the film when she's when she's doing this. As as somebody who's 51 now, and 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 then to see her trying to get back in shape uh, to take on uh, on her new role. You know, everything from uh, you know not eating to um, doing all those kinds of crazy things with her face. Uh, it, it's just it's it's crazy. And yeah, it's age appropriate to when the decline for, for females begins in Hollywood. Yeah. That's good. That's point. good point. Yeah. I like the line by Joe where he says, there's nothing tragic about being 50. Yeah. Unless you're trying to be 25 or whatever he says. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we, we turn, you know, you look at anything, TV shows and what have you, where you have kids that are supposedly in high school and are being played by actors in their yeah. 30s. Who look, you know, who look young, but are still not like, you know, the people look like when I was in high school. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, the writing in this film is is really something to pay attention to. As someone who writes myself, I just, um, I love the structure of the story. I think it works very well as a as a three act piece, mm -hmm. and you can see how the, the structure is there. If you're really looking for it, you can almost see like, okay, this is when act one ends, act two. Um, and no scene or moment in the film is wasted. Right. 
right so tight and focused even you know my favorite one of my favorite scenes is when they she's playing bridge with the wax works and again it works as you said Bill, i think on a, in a meta level where on one hand it's these characters that are former stars and in real life they're actors who were formerly great stars including buster keaton yeah yeah uh buster keaton hb warner right who played he played jesus in an early silent film um on the life of christ and then uh there's anna nielsen who's the the other player there yeah hp warner actually he was also in uh it's a wonderful life he plays um the pharmacist who eventually uh you know in the parallel universe <laughs> um inadvertently kills the uh the young boy with the with the with the wrong dosage. So. Oh yeah, I'll be darn. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, but Buster Keaton looks so, so sad in that scene. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and he still milks a little moment of pathos with his little. He only has two words, and he's like, yeah. "Pass and pass," and he says it twice, and you kind of chuckle because he he gets a little he gets a little laugh or the, the camera lingers on him a bit. It does. It does, and I, I'm I'm sure it's because you know it's it's a it's a a real cameo and I would think back then seeing that in the theater that would have gotten some murmurs mm-hmm. look it's Buster Keaton you know I'd, I'd like to think so anyway <laughs> and yet again reduced you know to, to be in the film and you know you talked about the writing of it it's it's a it's a noir it's a drama and it's a satire yep. and right. you know you could view it on three different days and say today I'm gonna look at yep. the noir aspects Yep, and it all works. That scene, uh, Walt, that you mentioned, the waxwork scene, what comes to mind, what really sticks out beside the cameo is just how um, how demeaning mm-hmm. Joe Gillis, you know, the, the, the behavior where he's expected to empty the ashtrays and um, he goes out and sees his car being towed and, and she's not even paying attention to something so urgent and important when he finally gets her attention, they go out and she's like, you know, who cares? You know, you're, why do you need that? You know, it's just, it's car. yeah. Yeah. There's just so many d- scenes where, you know, he's sort of put in his place. I love the line where, um, what exactly does he say? Um, he says something along the lines of, I'm drawing it, but he basically says something about, do you, you know, do you owe me or do I owe you something? It's basically the essence of the line. She says to him, what, you, you want me to explain it to you? You know, what you owe me? I, mean, I know I'm getting it wrong, but I'm just drawing a blank here because it's late, I had enough coffee. But basically, throughout the, the entire film, there's just these little moments where you, you get to see how, you know, um, the relationship where she is clearly the, uh, the superior and, and he's the the servant, the one that owes her. Even when he, even when he goes out and, and, and starts writing uh, with Betty and, and she finds out about it, she threatens him, but you know, I'll take my life and, and you know, the threats of suicide. It's, it's this attempt to get a kind of power over him. But it, yeah. it, kind of, it reminds me, I guess I'm, I'm conflicted about this character. Um, do you see Joe as, as really a loser? I do. I kind of do. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
pathetic. You know, I think there's yeah. there's yeah. there's a pathetic quality to him, and and the fact that again, getting back to the demeanor, he allows himself to be demeaned. It's almost like he yeah right. He has conditioned himself to be okay with the subservient behavior and the clothes, the trinkets. They're basically reminders of, you know, this is this is how this is how this is working here, yeah. and um, and obviously, not to say obviously, but I do believe we're meant to believe that there's uh, a sexual nature to the relationship. Oh, there is. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, the New Year's Eve party when he comes home, or I say home, but when when he comes to her home, he can't he can't run away from that. You know, I mean, he he could broken free forever yeah. at that point but something about maybe it's the maybe there's a sympathy there maybe there is um you know there's something that is deeper but anyhow he, he, he ends up coming back and um they have that conversation and uh, he feels bad enough for her and and eventually i just love the scene where it shows her hands i mean they look literally like claws yeah and they, they grab onto him and yeah. slow, you know, the, the fade out, which we all know what that means. And the <laughs> curtains blowing in the window, <laughs> but you know, in lesser hands, Joe Gillis would be the female character and Gloria Swanson would be the male, the sort of the, uh, the Svengali or the dominant figure. But this, this film is brave enough to reverse the roles and have him be a morally compromised male and her be the controlling, dominant, powerful female. Yeah. Which Speaking of, um, of power and control, I, um, I love the scene and I, I got to believe it's intentional or, or perhaps it was unintentional, but left in. But when he when he leaves on New Year's, I think it's New Year's night, his chain gets caught in the door. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little reminder of, you know, it's breaking free of this is not going to be too easy. You are chained to her. <laughs> Uh, think about how, how much subtle metaphor is introduced throughout the film. I mean, um, you know, the chain on the door, the wind that blows through the pipe organ that plays the dirge, um, the monkey who like to poke at the fire with a stick. Yeah. And even, even the title sunset Boulevard, it's all just so <laughs> metaphorically apt. To the well, theme. Yeah. I love the line where uh, someone calls about the car and, Norma says, you know, uh, who was it? And, and <coughs> says, someone inquiring about a stray dog. <laughs> Actually, no, no, it wasn't. It was, it was Betty, right? It was Betty calling. And so, yeah, it, someone, was, someone was inquiring about a stray dog. Um, perfect. Great, great line. Oh, and yeah, the, um, when he gets out of the pool, you know, she, uh, she dries him off. It's almost like a mother drying off her little boy, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, by the way, he, um, William Holden was, was definitely in shape <laughs> when, he, when he got out of that pool. It's like, you know, I didn't know they had memberships to uh, gyms back then, but yeah, right. <laughs> that was back when Harry Chess were in fashion too. Yeah. <laughs> but think about how much too, you know, again, back to that thematically apt stuff, how many, how much throughout this film, the ghosts of Hollywood are there. I mean, there's mentioning of people, you know, Alan Ladd and, yeah. and Valentino, and then we see DeMille and we see the waxworks and they're yeah. all just, they're all there without being there. That's right. That's right. And if you think about it, when you kind of put it into our context here, so the silent era was 
it was what, 25 years? We're, we were removed 25 years from yeah, the South. That, right, yeah. 25, 30 years. Um, 25, 30 years ago from now is, you know what, not in the nine, um, 90? Yeah, in the late 90s. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that long ago. No, no. So it was definitely, it wasn't ancient history. Right. Even though it was kind of portrayed in that way, as if to say the world has really moved on fast mm -hmm. from this era. And of course, none of those actors that, that, that took part in that, none of them are on the lot, so to speak. Right. They're not working actors any longer. So I think that it, the metaphor of, of them being ghosts is, is absolutely accurate, that they are ghosts that continue to haunt Hollywood to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure I've never I think I've been to Hollywood once in my life, but I'm sure that they're you know, all around that area of L.A., there are ghosts of Hollywood mm -hmm. still living today. You know, you, you hear someone passes on and you're like, oh, I didn't really know they were even alive because right, they're right. not alive to us unless they're in front of us on film. Yep. Right. Right. Oh, and uh, Hedda Hopper has a cameo right at the end. She's the, the reporter. Yep. In the, uh, in the bedroom. So yeah, uh, a lot of cameos here. Um, so I heard it was said, this is the best, film about Hollywood uh, ever made. And, and it, was, it was ranked up there in the article that I was reading with, a, there was a, a modern day film. I, I think I saw it with Tim Robbins called The Player. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing it, but I don't, uh, I'd like to see that again. But, but yeah. other than that, I mean, what, you know, what really skewers the, this world is, as much as that. I mean, I, I thought the, um, an underrated Coen Brothers film, Hail Caesar, yeah. does that a little bit. It goes to show you, though, how much clout Billy Wilder had and how good he was that he could put out a movie like this and not be pariah, not be blacklisted in any way. And, you know, he made many great films after this one. Yeah, and he, did. Uh, he had he 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 earned the right to to make this statement. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a better to to your point, Walt, a better Hollywood uh, film about Hollywood that's this truthful and entertaining and everything that a film could be. Um, so let's talk about the ending a bit. I, I just, I can't think of a better, uh, more iconic ending. And I know the words overused, but this is right up there for me with, uh, you know, the ending of Casablanca and, and, and Citizen Kane. It's just a, you know, has the, you know, the famous line, you know, Mr. DeBille, I'm ready for my close-up, and it's so sad, you know, and I, a lot of my students, when they see this film, they they don't know what to make of Norma for a while, but I think by the end, they often feel pretty pretty bad for her, but I'm wondering, you know, should we feel bad for her? I mean, in a way, I think it's true, that line that Joe says in his narration, that you know, mercy was given to Norma. <laughs> you know, Hollywood has taken mercy, or the world, the audience has taken mercy on uh, Norma in that she was delusional, fully delusional to the point where, you know, she was happy. Can anyone sanely survive that level of adoration? I mean, you know, you, you see interviews or something, say Bob Dylan, where he seems rude and dismissive. 
but how many times does he have in the course of his day people right jumping in his face and telling him he's a god how, how do you just deal with that and, and so you know especially in in the 1920s and all when this uh, this emerging mega fame is so new you know how do you deal with that i mean we look at it we, we see the cautionary tales in hollywood all the time of either the the rising star like jim belushi who flames out or or the child stars who just just go into you know Lindsay Lohan's and all that go into drug addiction and, and all that and so how do you keep this level of adoration and fame on people and expect them to maintain any kind of equilibrium when it's pulled away? I, I think this is exactly the point of Nora Desmond. I think I think you've you've hit it. I, I think that when you live with it for that long, you you become trapped in your and that's really the house, right? She becomes trapped in her own mind. Um, everything from the big screen showing her movies inside of her house to to you know, allowing the place to go to seed after a while. Um, this is all about her not being able to to bridge that gap to reality. Yeah, she allows it to go to seed, even though yeah. she's more than wealthy enough to have maintained exactly. it if she wanted to. Yeah. When Lawrence Olivia was asked once in an interview, "Why did you go into acting?" His reply was, "Look at me! Look at me! Look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" Yeah. <laughs> You know, the implicate, you know, you basically want it. It's just, it's for love. Yeah. And attention. Yeah. And um, when that stops, when that ceases after a career, um, a couple decades in Norman Desmond's case of, uh, you know, getting that, it, it must be in some people, it must, must be like a drug, you know, it must be something that you just, you know, you, it rewires your brain. Uh, Jack Nicholson, I heard him say in an interview once that, and I don't know how statistically true this is, but he he said that he made the claim that a celebrity, a high-level celebrity, meets more people in one month than most non-celebrities will meet in their entire life. Yeah. You know, and it's just a different type of existence, you know. And, uh, and, and think about it. Everybody you meet wants something from you whether it's just to shake your hand or here, look at my script or take a picture. Uh, yeah. They all want something. I want Paul McCartney was described once as, you know, you have the, even the celebrity celebrity. You can have, a, he was described by Mark Lewis and the author as you have, you'll have a room filled with celebrities. When Paul McCartney walks into that room, all the celebrities yeah. look at him like, look who's here. <laughs> So if Norma Desmond was that equivalent, you know, and, and honestly, a silent film star was, you know, one of the highest things you could be at some, you know, in terms of celebrity at one point. It's as close we really come to the Greek gods in that sense, right? And Umberto yeah. Eco makes this argument uh, in, in various places that when we talk about actors on that level, especially people like Paul McCartney or, or Bob Dylan that have something that is, that you can't, sort of cultivate they just have it um you know that's 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 close to 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 divinity yeah oh yeah well yeah, yeah and you take the actors too because now you know it's not necessarily true today with home video and all but back then they were 40 feet high right and they they never made mistakes because the camera you know, only showed the perfect scene the perfect line delivery you know, never showed somebody picking their nose or waiting to go to the bathroom and so they were as you said andrew they were divine yep. you know and they're larger than life. There's, there's this wonderful film that I like um, called My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole, where he's this sort of really famous actor. And, and, and then, you know, he's sort of fallen on hard times and he takes a, a, a gig in, in a play and, and he makes a mistake. And, 
he says something to the effect, damn it, I'm a movie star, not an actor. That there is a <laughs> difference between that. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. And, and she says at one point in the film, you know, she gets 17,000 or she, in her heyday, she was getting 17,000 fan letters a week. Yeah. You know, and again, that, that's a level of adoration. Um, my day is made when someone says, nice job, you know. <laughs> it doesn't take much, right? Yeah. I see you. <laughs> it doesn't happen much, I can tell you. <laughs> for a second about Gloria Swanson's uh, uh, acting chops here, which I just find absolutely magnificent. Um, you know, I first came to this film as a kid seeing Carol Burnett play uh, Nora Desmond walking down the stairs. Uh, and and saying, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. And, you know, and that's how I sort of discovered this. Then I saw this film first in, in a film class I took um, way back in 1988 or 89. And then I, I just watched it again for the first time uh, about three weeks ago. And, and it's so physical, her acting. And, and, you know, every facial move is, 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 really deliberate and she's just absolutely brilliant in in this film yeah yeah a lot of, a lot of silent film stars of course came out of theater and uh, yeah. you know they were uh trained to project to the 30th row right. and so uh as they were learning the art of cinema you know that that sort of kind of carried over in a way but i love how norma desmas played like she she's played intentionally by Gloria Swanson as a, she's almost like in a movie, like her life is a, is a movie. So she is, her life, her, her regular persona has, is, is melodramatic. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, it's not like the, you know, she's acting melodramatic because she's not capable. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, just, it's just perfect because yeah. that's who she is. The line yeah. between yeah. the, uh, the film, her film life and her real life is completely overlapped. Every move is to a camera that's not there yeah. in her mind. And, and you know, what's great is that it does lend itself to parody as Cal Burnett did. And, and it's easy to look at it as cartoonish, but she lets that humanity seep through. Yep. And there are moments where you just feel her pain and her desperation. And her loneliness. And her vaingloriousness. And, mm -hmm. and it's just, so you, you do see her as, you know, you can understand how a person could get this way. It's a great yeah. performance. Right, right. It, yeah, moments of tenderness, absolutely. It's, it's there, um, especially when she's hurt, when she's really, truly hurt, when she learns about the other girl, you know, about Betty. You know, she obviously turns to anger at some point, but at first it's it's real genuine pain. And you can see that through her, uh, through her performance. It's yeah, it's, there's peaks and valleys. It's not all peaks. It's right. not all just the grand gesture. There are the quiet moments that she inhabits as well. Um, but she really, you know, when that final scene comes, when she walks, descends that staircase, playing to the cameras, uh, having just murdered a man, she's earned that moment. What a, yeah. what a fantastic moment. The music in that's the, the the selection of mu of 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 score during the staircase scene is absolutely perfect. Yeah, uh, you know, it just goes to show you that music is an essential part of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's it's not it, it can't be overestimated how important it is. And just the uh, I don't know, I'm not sure how to really describe it, but it's it's a uh, it's a very offbeat kind of. Um, 
part of the score. It's, it's not sinister. It's a little bit sinister, but not fully. It's, it's certainly not beautiful. It's just a, a very almost uh, clumsy kind of progression of a, of, a, of a tune. It's the best way I can describe it, but I think it's really perfect. It does more than set the mood. It, it really becomes another character in a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so I mean, she's probably going to be locked up, right? She'll be, you know, she'll probably what um, institutionalized. Yeah, dim cap defense, diminished capacity. Right. Almost but it'll be works. it'll be another role for her, won't it? I mean, she'll she'll just be going into yet another role for her to play. That's all she knows how to do. That's all she knows. That's how she deals with reality by, you know, you've said it earlier, Bill. That's how, you know, she's always constantly acting. Everything from every movement that she does to the outfits that she picks out to, to the words that she's speaking. It's all, you know, it's, it's all deliberate. Yep. yep. And Max will be there for her. And Max will be there for her visiting, but yeah. <laughs> why does he, why does he do that? Why, why did he devote his life to her? Is, 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 is that something that you feel is explained in the film or, or assumed that he just basically uh, devoted his entire life to keeping her sane, happy in her own fantasy? Well, I think he loved her, but I also think too that, um, and we see it a little bit in the screening, she, you know, she had the charisma. She, she had the greatness. People are drawn to that. They cling to it. You know, he was great in his own right, and he subverted himself to her. I think it's love. He gave up everything. Yeah, ultimate act of love. Yeah, for her, it, it's it's a very deep love if you think about it, because he's actually encouraging the relationship in his own way. Yeah, between uh, Norma and, and Joe, right? I yep. mean, most people will love someone else, but they'll certainly draw the line when they even fathom the idea of that person being happier with someone else. You know, they don't want that. Um, but yeah, that's that's very interesting relationship, and that's <laughs> that, that's part. That's definitely part of the film that really um, blows my students' minds when they when they learn that, you know, wow, you know, he was the first husband. Yeah, if you just watch the film, watching him, it's so tragic, and he never he never rankles under her. He never shows resentment. It's total mm -hmm. obedience all the way up to the end. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah, when he's directing the cameras and he stands there next to him, like you know, he's in his moment too as well. And it's just yeah, it, it makes you want to cry. Yeah, and doesn't he say keep the cameras on or some keep the cameras rolling or, or something to that effect? I think one of the only times where he actually seems vulnerable and almost broken is when she discovers um or when Joe tries to tell her right at the right towards the end, the truth. Yeah. Um, tell him about those letters, Max. Tell him. He sort of avoids the question by saying, you know, she was the greatest star of them all. And before he says that, he looks like a like a wounded puppy, as if he. he but he very much goes back into that. Nope, I still got to keep this going, and I'm not going to stop keeping this going. So talk about sacrificing for art. I mean, yeah, you know, we, we talked about how Hollywood doesn't appreciate the gene, its own geniuses. And yet he, he never stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
maintained it. I think I, I think for me, one of my favorite films about Hollywood would be Singing in the Rain, which kind of in its own different way uh, tackles the the idea of, of the transition from uh, or the lack of transition from the silent era to the talkie era, the sound era. And um, there's a there's a little bit of a cynicism to that. They they couch yeah. it in in pithiness, but uh, it's there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That will be another podcast down the road. <laughs> Gene Kelly was approached for the role of Joe Gillis. Is that right? His studio wouldn't release him. Really? And Brando was too. Wow. He was considered an unknown. But can you imagine? I don't know. If, I don't know. Gene Kelly had a kind of a smugness to him. He could have. But, but Holden nails it. Holden, it, it, it's Holden's part. I mean, absolutely. He's, yeah. So. Brando? Brando seems young, would seem young for that at that time. Be given up pretty early. I mean, I think the, William Holden's character, I, I don't know how old, I don't know if there's any reference to his age in the, in the, in the film itself, but his appearance, he looks like he's probably in his 30s. And yeah. so I think the fact that he's not a kid kind of tells us that, you know, he's, he's been trying at the, he's been going at this for a while. And it's not happening. <laughs> no, and the same true with Holden in real life. His star was on the wane, um, but his his delivery is so. I mean, he knows the focus is going to be on Nora Desmond, Norma Desmond every time that she's on the screen. But he has that bitterness and cynicism. He has the quippy one-liners, but he doesn't he doesn't ham it up. He 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 understates it, mm-hmm. and it plays nicely off of each other. And you can see the self-loathing dripping off of him. At the same time, he's buying into it totally. Is yeah. this, you know, I'm thinking about his character now at, in, in a different way. Is he, is he somehow, um, you know, does Hollywood do him a wrong turn, especially in that very first scene where, we, where he goes and he's pitching his film and, and it's not going well at all? Or is he really just, he doesn't have the talent to do it? I don't, I, yeah, that's, that's something that's come, popped into my head when watching this film over the years, is, is he actually any good or is it just the right. fact that Hollywood actually prefers, you know, commercial... A certain type of film, yeah. A certain type of film and not necessarily always good right. writing, artistic writing. That's a good question. I don't, I don't think it's really, uh, it's really addressed. No, and, and I don't know, I don't think we can answer it, but it's certainly worth, worth thinking about because there comes a point where you have to say, uh, you know, you just, you've got to give up, I think. I, I hate to say that, but you know it sounds cynical and 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 defeatist. But you know, how many years can you go on doing this, thinking I'm going to be discovered, I'm going to be discovered, or I'll get my big break when it just time and again it doesn't happen? Actually, take that back. There is the uh, reference where Betty recalls a story that she read of his. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that has a part that she found very moving. Yeah, although she didn't like the entire story on the whole. A part of it, right? She liked a part of it. Yeah. So I, I guess he has enough talent to produce something meaningful, at least. His but, agent won't lend him the money because he says he needs to get hungry. He says the best writing is done when That's right. And yeah, something goes back to, to Hemingway, right? Hunger is a good discipline. <laughs> and I think he's trying to pigeonhole himself a bit, too, because he's trying, I think he's trying to write, he's legitimately trying to write commercial scripts. And, um, but he's just not, he doesn't seem to be very good at it. I mean, uh, that I film, 
What's that? That film he pitches in the beginning sounds awful to me. Bases loaded. Yeah, bases loaded, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh Yeah. Well, there, there's a funny joke Eight. where he says, I, I, I wrote a story about the Okies in California, and by the time it went to the film, it was set on a torpedo boat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, how things change. Yeah, right, right. And Betty, Betty goes on, she's like, you know, don't bother reading it. It's from hunger. <laughs> Basically saying, look, this person's just trying to... Yeah to get something produced, just pandering and pandering. And, uh, you know, and I, he make, he makes a case, uh, Joe says to her when his, her, when his presence is made known, Oh, you know, she's one of the message kids, you know, uh, a good story isn't, isn't good enough. So. Yeah. Right. I, I like the fact that the producer that he's pitching to at the beginning turned down going with the wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who would turn down go with the wind? That would be me. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> who, would go, who would go see a Civil War picture? <laughs> I mean, when I was watching this, especially this, this last time in the beginning, all I could think of was really, you know, William Faulkner going to Hollywood and writing those screenplays or contributing to those screenplays. And of course, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, whose life ends in Hollywood very tragically. Yep. He, he has a heart attack in Schwab's, the drugstore. Right. In Schwab's drugstore, right. Yep. Did he die there, or was that just... That's where no, he died at home, but uh, yeah. I mean, right there, you have two Nobel Prize winner, winners in literature who failed in Hollywood, right? You have uh, Faulkner, right? Yeah, Faulkner, but I don't think Fitzgerald ever won the Nobel. Hemingway. Hemingway, yeah. Right. But, you know, if you read The Great Gatsby, Fitzgerald didn't write for film. Gatsby can't right. be filmed. I don't care right. how many film adaptations they make. The point of the story is never never comes across to me. Right, and, right. And I don't think he ever knew how to write for film. No. Right. And his last uncompleted novel is all about Hollywood, right? You know, The Last Tycoon, which he never completed. Right, right. Yeah. Another moment that my students really love, they get freaked out when she, when you know, after they're watching the film, which we referenced earlier, uh, she goes in this tirade about, you know, um, they needed sound and, you know, talk, talk. And she stands up, I'll, I'll be back, you know, and she, um, she turns and you have the light of the projector shining. And she almost looks like the bride of Frankenstein in that particular <laughs> shot. Then at the end, um, when Joe leaves her for the last time, he uh, storms down the stairs and she, she says something along the lines of, you know, no one leaves a star. That's when, that's what makes one a star. And she sort of turns and, her eyes are bulging out of her head. It's just yeah. awesome. Great, great scene. There's a sweet moment where she does a pretty decent Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's right, yeah. yeah. That's you know, show, showing her, her skill in silent performing. I like that. Yeah. No, they were, they were versatile, you know, back, back in the day, you know, and a lot of them were singers, dancers, yeah. um, mimics, so... All kinds of threats. What do you think, you know, now we're in, in 2020, of course, and, and if we don't show a film like this in, in film classes, uh, or if some uh, increasingly fewer art houses don't show it, is this one of those films that you think nowadays people know by reputation more than having seen it? Yeah. Um, I think that... Yeah, I, I don't think young audiences would see this if they're not showing it in film studies. I mean, I I never have students who come into this class having seen it. Yeah. You know, um, 
there's going to be a point where, and we're probably there now, where if you, you know, you're going to have to seek these out. You're going to have to have some sort of kind of like with uh, classic novels or anything that's considered canonized and um, older. You know, you're just not going to get a lot of kids seeing this unless they're, um, it's part of some sort of curriculum. Yeah. Isn't, it, isn't it one of the great pleasures of film class to introduce students to yeah. a film like this that they've never seen and watch them just love it? Um, that, that's, that's the best pleasure I, I've really ever had. Yeah, I agree. For me, that's the best, that's, that's the closest thing to get, getting to seeing it again for the first time. And, and sometimes I tell my students that I say, I, I envy that you are about to see the Godfather for the first time. And I think being, as you said, Walt, being in that room, well, 30 kids are seeing it for the first time. That is as close as you can get to you yourself seeing it for the first time. So, But I've never so, seen this on the big screen, and I, I would love to. Yeah, I would love to as well. Yeah, I haven't either. I would like to see anything on the big screen. Yeah. <laughs> right, and, and, and hopefully that won't change. Hopefully the uh, uh, theaters will be opening them back up soon, but, um, but yeah. who knows? Um, yeah, the, uh, not to get us on a total tangent here, but we are doing this recording uh, as we're still in uh, social distancing mode. We have uh, articles popping up every now and then of, of smaller theaters, uh, you know, going under. And uh, I really hope that stops happening. And, um, you know, obviously it carries over into uh, the theater world, live theater, but film certainly. And uh, theaters that sell, even the, the, um, the giant megaplexes, you know, the tennis is down there as well. So. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm only mentioning that, hoping that we could uh, <laughs> hope for the best that we could see some of these classic films on the big screen, continuing to do so. Because even we we went to, we saw Vertigo as a as a group together on uh, that was actually at Cinemagic, and so yeah. even even some of the bigger theaters are having these series where they're showing classic films, and I'm hoping that continues. Hoping we can get ourselves into the theater as soon as, as soon as it's healthy to do so. But you have to wonder how long um, theaters like, say, the Brattle Theater in, in Cambridge can can hold on in, in times like these. And to lose something like that, I think, would be a real blow to to culture um, writ large. Yeah. It's, it's, I, have seen, I mean, we've seen a couple of films down there uh, at that theater. And, and to see it on that screen is... Is, and, and as I said in, in a previous podcast, to see a film in, with strangers is there's nothing quite like it. I don't want to go, you know, carrying it over to other industries, the restaurant industry, of course, I do not want to walk into the North end anytime soon and see right. an olive garden there. Right. Where a wonderful Mon Pa restaurant once existed or a Sparrows or a yeah. Papa Gino's. <laughs> right. well, that's why we, you know, when, when this ends, hopefully we can do a, a podcast from the Red River Theater or from somewhere, you know, meet Andrew. Yep. yep. Somewhere and, and just, because there's nothing. I remember seeing, I, I've seen Bride of Frankenstein a million times on TV. But when I went to the theaters and saw it on the big screen, it's a different film. Any yeah. film was. When we saw Vertigo, any film writ large like that, it adds a dimension to it and an experience to it that you just don't get on a small screen. Yep. It's kind of interesting that our, our conversation on, on Sunset Boulevard has, has kind of ended up where we are right now. Um, because in a way, we're, we're, we're like those um, you know, the wax works and, and perhaps we've seen 
uh, or perhaps cinema and our viewing of cinema is going to fundamentally change. Yeah, I guess change is something that is uh, inevitable, but man, the, the communal experience of seeing a, a film is something that I'm not going <laughs> to let go too easily. You right, know? right. Even if it's not communal, when I was growing up on a hot summer day, I would go to the cinema, you know, and sit in the third row center. There'll be no one else in the theater on a matinee. You know, I remember seeing the right stuff and I was the only person in the theater, three rows back, big bucket of popcorn. Yeah. Couldn't even see the size of the screen in my peripheral vision. Yeah. You know, yeah. just, it's amazing to do. Yeah. Well, if, if you do get a chance out there to go see Sunset Boulevard, um, you know, it, it, it is absolutely a film um, that is not only on, on AFI's top 100, but it's, it's certainly, I think, among the three of us, one of our top films of all time. Absolutely. So uh, Sunset Boulevard, 1950, directed by Billy Wilder, starring William Holden and Gloria Swanson, among others. But um, I think that's it for the classroom critics this evening. Um, so we want to thank you. As always, you can follow us on uh, iTunes or Podbeam, uh, wherever you get your podcast. And uh, I am told we now have a YouTube channel. Is that correct? Absolutely. So uh, follow us on YouTube. So uh, on behalf of uh, Bill Eilers, uh, Ivers and uh, Walter Freeman, thank you very much for tuning in. See you next time. Good night. Good night.